We'll pick it up at verse 16. That's where we left off last week. Um, Let's pray first, if you don't mind. Uh, Lord, I pray, Spirit of God, you would descend upon and bring your very nature and your words and your heart and your truth to our minds. How much we need you, Lord. How much we need you. And we thank you that you know that and you're gracious and you love us so much that you want to speak to us and you will speak to us as you have been speaking to us this morning, Lord, through the beautiful worship and being mindful, being blown away by the truth of your presence in Mecca of all places. It just demonstrates your great love, Lord, for fallen man. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just read here Hebrews 9, verse 16. It says, For where there is a testament... There must also of necessity be the death of the testator. I don't like that word for some reason. I just don't like saying it. It sounds uncomfortable to me. (laughs) Uh, For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Uh, Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Uh, So, I used to uh, love doing connect the dots (laughs) pictures. Um, I think we all do or did. Maybe we've grown out of that. Uh, Because we love to discover Uh, To have something revealed that looks scrambled or confusing or simply unknown, the fun was that after you had connected all the dots, you could see the big picture, right? So today, on Father's Day and Juneteenth, uh, right? Amen? We know Juneteenth, right? Which is very interesting because it was on this day in 1865, I believe, 
that the last uh, contingent of slaves were emancipated, something that Abraham Lincoln had declared two years prior. But even though their freedom had been declared, they hadn't experienced it until the Union Army came in and set them free and made that declaration. So that was a a long-awaited thing, but they did eventually experience what had already been provided for them. So you can see the gospel correlation pretty simply. It's also Father's Day. Uh, I heard somewhere, I I, I believe it's true, that Chuck Colson, uh, a man who spent some time in prison because he got tangled up in the Watergate affair back in Nixon's presidency, that um, Colson observed while he was in prison that um, on Mother's Day, the cards that were available to the inmates would sell out because they all wanted to write a note to their mama. (laughs) Not true on Father's Day. Uh, So all that to say that um, as a dad, uh, as a grandpa, there's just amazing, it really overflows your heart to have that privilege to be called dad. But I want to just, because there is some delicacy sometimes with fathers and the relationships that weren't there or were strained or whatever, I'm going to direct our attention today to the perfect dad, the God the Father, the one who influences, hopefully influences all of us, his sons, his dads, to love like he loved. So I'm going to connect those two things because it's Father's Day and it's Juneteenth. I'm going to try to connect uh, a few words in this passage of Hebrews after we look a little bit more closely at the text that we just read. And those words come from verse 10, the word reformation. Uh, Verse 15, the word inheritance. And the last verse, 28 appear. Reformation, inheritance, and appear. (laughs) Okay? So we talked about Reformation a little bit last week. Um, It tells us in verse 10 that uh, there was a time of Reformation. And what the author is referring to is um, when Jesus would come and take um, all the Articles and, and the structure of the tabernacle itself, uh, which were a shadow or a copy or a parable, if you will, um, he would come and he would start a new thing. He would put things in order. He would, it'd be the fulfillment of what those represented. Okay? So it's, uh, it's uh, Reformation literally means restoring to its natural or normal condition something that was out of order, something that was broken, needed to be reset. And so I see the word Reformation, that it has actually a lot of meaning to it. And I think, and I know, that it means more than just the fulfilling of what the tabernacle represented, because that had external influence on the lives of people, that Jesus came as our high priest and he brought deep internal meaning, that he not only brought a fulfillment to what the tabernacle represented, but he brought a a restoring of relationship with sinners and God 
by his work as our high priest. So it has a lot of meaning to it. And I think one of the clearest examples of the, the meaning that I want to consider is uh, the spiritual meaning and the relational aspect of the word reformation, which comes out so clearly when Jesus walked into his hometown of Nazareth and he was handed the scroll, opened up to the book of Isaiah, and he said, or he actually read the scriptures, and he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's Isaiah 61.1. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so you can see that the word reformation, when it comes, when it's expressed through the heart and the mind and the mouth of Jesus, it has a very literal uh, application. He fixed things that were broken. <laughs> Poor people needed help and hope. Brokenhearted needed healing. Those who were captive needed recovery of sight or set at liberty, rather. And the, and the blind needed sight. And those all had very literal fulfillment as he went out in his public ministry, right? He healed blind. He did all those things. But it has a deeper spiritual meaning. That because of the sin, because of the curse in which we, this fallen world in which we live, we are spiritually blind. We are hard-hearted and broken-hearted. And there's the effects of sin brings all kinds of troubles in our life. And the Lord came to restore, to reform, to set in order, to make new and to make right all that. So I just wanted a reformation, inheritance. Inheritance is the other word in verse 15. Eternal inheritance is something given and received from another. And for our consideration this morning, and we'll talk a little bit more, it's a current and a future possession. It's a current and a future possession. Our inheritance is something that we actually possess now. It's given to us. It's the nature of an inheritance, as we'll talk about in a minute. And then finally appear. So I just want to frame all this in the context of marriage. Because it's been said by Jonathan Edwards that the, really the story of the Bible is a marriage between God and people. First with Adam and Eve, as is shown in the very first marriage, and then ultimately with Jesus and the church. Even in the Old Testament, God would refer to his chosen people, the Hebrew people, as you know, being in a, in a marital relationship with them. He recalled himself, I'm your husband. And there's been uh, infidelity in the relationship. There was spiritual adultery. That's because they were bound together by a covenant. All right? It's often been said that when Moses, as the author refers to here, once he read the, the conditions of the relationship... Right? It was basically God making a formal proposal to his people, saying, let's enter into a lifetime together, a lifetime relationship in that context of marriage. So I want to just frame it all in that way. All right? 
Let's look first uh, to set up ourselves here a little bit in some of the notes that are important in understanding. Um, Before we jump into verse 16 and this idea of a will and a testament, uh, it comes right on the heels of the author making reference to this inheritance. So I didn't read it. Let's look at it at the moment. Verse 15, and for this reason, for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Let me say right up front, brothers and sisters, that as we read this remainder of this chapter, right, the author is holding up to us the finished work of Christ. he's, He's looking at what Jesus did on the cross, which was the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. In the Old Covenant, there was one day, once a year, one day, the one man would go in and make an offering for all the sin of the people that covered their sin for a year's, for the previous year. But he would go in every year. So that was the Day of Atonement, and essentially that's what happened on the cross. One man did not go into a literal holy place, most holy place, the temple, but he entered into the presence of God where he suffered the judgment for our sins. It was the covering or the purging of sin from, for all people for all time. Not just one year, but for all time. For the sin of your past, present, and future. So he's the mediator for this reason, the author says, for the reason that he has been able to mediate this new covenant and purge our conscience by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance, eternal inheritance. So right on the heels of the author making mention of inheritance, He goes right into this idea of, well, how is an inheritance on earth passed on to the next generation? And so he uses, that's what he mentions here, for where there is a testament or a will, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. A last will and testament. You ever heard the saying, where there's a will, there's a way? (laughs) Well, it's exactly, I think, what this refers to. A man has a will. He has a desire to pass on to those whom he loves his possessions. Usually it's money, real estate, and personal belongings, right? So you go ahead. You can dream and imagine if somebody that you know is really rich and they were to put your name in the will as the sole beneficiary, what are you going to get, right? It's going to be something pretty cool, maybe a nice car, maybe a property somewhere, um, so on and so forth. There are some bizarre bequeathments. <laughs> it's kind of fun to look up. I'll read a couple of them to you here. In 1988, uh, 13 years before he died of natural causes, a wealthy Portuguese bachelor, a wealthy Portuguese bachelor signed an unusual will. He had no children and very few friends, so he bequeathed his fortune to 70 strangers whom he randomly selected from the Lisbon telephone directory. (laughs) Cool, huh? When his heirs were notified of their inheritance, most believed they were being scammed. (laughs) 
<laughs> Rightfully so, right? However, each received the equivalent of several thousand dollars. It's a true story, right? Kind of interesting. In 1992, just one more illustration, Carol Wood was a 17-year-old teenager, a soccer star at her local high school, but working a job at Dink's Colonial Restaurant in her hometown of Chagrin Falls in Ohio, near Cleveland. Uh, she was a good employee, bright, friendly, and helpful. One customer, Bill Cruxton, took such a liking to her that he always sat in her section. Bill was a widower with no children, and he went to the restaurant daily for his meals and some company. Kara Wood became so important to Cruxton that he rewrote his will, making her the main beneficiary of his half-million-dollar estate. And uh, so she put herself through college, and um, sort of interesting, also I discovered that she had to spend $100,000 on legal fees because there were some relatives who were, wanted a stake in the claim, and they were upset that uh, their uncle or brother or whoever had named her as the sole beneficiary. Um, so a will and a testament. The thing for us, uh, what happens with a will is that uh, a person literally has a will, right? And they have a will to dispense their goods to people that he cares about for whatever reason. And so to do that, that person is that person's called the testator, but then you have, he has to appoint an executor, right? After the passing of my dad, my dad appointed my oldest, his firstborn, and his secondborn, in case the firstborn um, were to pass, my brother Jeff. So Jeff is really the executor of my dad's estate. Uh, so you have a testator. He has a will. Uh, he makes this will while he's alive. He appoints an executor of the will, and then he names the beneficiaries, right? So the thing for us to keep in mind here is that Jesus is the testator, and he's the executor, right? Oh, it's good, <laughs> right? Jesus is the testator, which indicates that he's God. He's also the executor, which indicates that he's man. And so what he's doing is he's, he knows the mind and the will of God. And what is God's will? That men would be saved, that men would live with God forever, Right? So that's just the thing to keep in mind, and, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. Uh, verse 18, therefore not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. So the author is reminding his Jewish Christian friends that uh, to hold on to Jesus, and he's just holding up their, their bridegroom to them, and he's, he's holding up the finished work of Christ so that, they won't, so that they'll be anchored in their soul and, and not drift away from him. As difficult and as challenging as their living out their faith might be or as, or as persistent as the doubts and the arguments might come uh, against Christianity, they are... The author is saying, no, 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 no. You, of all people, my dear Christian brothers and sisters who have a Jewish background and who are deeply, it's just, it's, your, it's the way you breathe. I mean, you grow up in this world of Judaism and it's, it's all about the temple and the ceremonies and the keeping of the laws and the kosher requirements and on 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 and on
613 different commandments. And so they just, they, they know these things. They're, they're, it's embedded in, it's in their DNA. And so he's saying like, you of all people. I, I, he's, he's just like, all that was just a shadow. Now I want to talk to you about the one who cast the shadow. I want to talk to you about the true light. That was just a copy. It was temporary. It was, it was a symbol. It was an example, a pattern. Now this is the real. So hold on to that. Hold on to that. What Jesus has finished, what he's done in your life, it is, it is complete. It is perfect. He's saved you to the uttermost, the author would say. And so therefore, that's why he reckons back to the lesser to promote the greater, right? That's what he's doing here. Therefore, not even the first, or even, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to law, he took the blood of calves and goats, and he talks about all that, right? So he's, I mean, closed the circle on that idea of, of a will and a testament, as the author had said, you can write your will, you can put everything in place, but it's not enforced until there's a death, right? When Mr. Cruxton died, Kara Wood discovered something amazing. When those 70 people living in Portugal got a knock on their door, they discovered that a complete stranger had left them something because of his death. As long as he's alive, the will is not activated. So that's what the author is, that's his point here. Jesus has died. Therefore, the will of God was activated, just as it happened in the Old Testament. There was a covenant, and then there was blood. So something died and it activated, and it, and it established the relationship. Verse 22. I'll just jump down to that. According to the law, almost all things are purified, with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness. Almost all things, which is an interesting statement. It's like, well, what's not cleansed with blood? What's not forgiven with blood? And you know, you know why? You know who it was? It was the poorest of the poor. Like, if you had money, you'd bring a bull. If you were middle class, you'd bring a lamb or a goat. If you were, you know, lower class economically, you'd bring two pigeons, right? Mary and Joseph brought pigeons, indicating they were poor at the time of Jesus' dedication. But if you couldn't afford a pigeon, you were allowed to bring a little bit of flour, a bloodless offering. And so God made, oh, he's so good, isn't he? He's so gracious. And so you could bring a little bit of flour because you couldn't bring something with blood. And God said, I understand your situation. And I know that if you could, you would. And even though you can't, that is looking over here to what was required, but I'll accept it because you can't afford it. It's really good, really gracious of God. So that's what he means when he says almost all things. And then he says, without shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness. Why is that true? Why is it true 
that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness? That's not an easy question to answer. Because the argument has been made and is being made, God can forgive sin. If God chooses to just wave the magic wand and say your sin is forgiven, he can do that. Only God can forgive sin. And if he chooses to just grant a pardon to someone, why can't he do that? Why is there this stipulation that is stated for us here that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness? Well, let me just say to you that you can debate this all you want, but that's what it says. And that's the truth. And it's something that we need to accept, whether we like it or not. And I've had lengthy conversations with people who don't like it. They want to deny the bloody sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ. And they make the argument of, no, God doesn't need to do that. He's God. And if he chooses to just randomly pardon somebody, has he done that? I don't know, maybe. Maybe you could argue that David, who committed adultery and murder, got off. I don't know. Moses committed murder. God seemed to have just blinked or, I don't know. Exceptions don't change the rule. And men, we, women, lady friends, brothers and sisters, this time doesn't allow forgiveness. Time doesn't always fix those, doesn't fix those things. You've incurred a debt, which we, a moral debt that we, is accrued and it's held accountable to God. Time doesn't erase that. Or a New Year's resolution. I'm going to change my behavior. I'm going to stop smoking. I'm going to stop overeating. I'm going to stop binging on video. Good things. All very good things. Very healthy. I'm going to start exercising. I'm going to eat Whole30 or vegan or whatever. Or just meat only. I don't know. Good things. (laughs) Right? In his sermon, uh, C.H. Spurgeon gave a sermon on this very, he called it the shedding of blood. And in his sermon, he began by presenting three fools. Uh, The first is a soldier who's wounded on the battlefield. The medic comes to the soldier, and immediately the soldier wants to know everything about the rifle and the soldier who shot him. The second fool is a ship's captain whose ship is about to go under in a terrible storm. The captain is not at the wheel of the ship, trying to guide it through the crashing waves. He's in his room studying charts, trying to determine where the storm came from. The third fool is a man who is sick and dying with sin, about to go under the ways of God's justice, yet he's deeply troubled about the origin of evil. Spurgeon's point is that we should look to the solution more than to the problem. Okay? 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Well, there is a solution to the problem of sin. The origin of evil, interesting thing to discuss. And so on and so forth. But this is a fact, and I know that it's fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And when I compare my personal choices that are wrong, and I look at Jesus, there's a solution. He's a loving, forgiving God. Verse 23, therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. That's kind of a difficult passage. It's like, there's nothing wrong in heaven. What is it that needs to be purified in heaven? And again, I, comment, I was aided greatly by the, the help of commentators who basically said it has to be referring to sinners, <laughs> Those who come into heaven are the ones who have been purified. That's why they're allowed into heaven, which is holy and perfect in God's presence. Verse 24, Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He's there for us. Do you see what just happened? The author has been talking about what Jesus did on earth, and without actually mentioning his resurrection and ascension, that's what's happened. We've, we've observed that Jesus was the testator and the executor and that by his death it affected the will of God. It activated the will of God towards sinners by his death on the cross. It was by his blood. The word blood is mentioned six or eight times in this little passage. By the blood of Jesus, right? There is forgiveness. So that's all happened on the cross and then there was a death and there was a resurrection. And now he's in heaven. He's alive, our great high priest. And he's there for us. He's advocating for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. You see the superiority of our high priest? Different from Aaron and all those who followed on those days of atonement? There was just one day, and it was completed on that one day. He then would have had to suffer since the foundation of the world, but now once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. These verses are stressing the complete forgiveness and salvation for all of our sin, for all of our life, for all who will believe the gospel. It's, it's comprehensive and it's conclusive. Brothers and sisters. And then he says, verse 27, It is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Okay, so he's talking about the second coming of Jesus there for his church. Um, it is appointed for men once to die. Appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. That's a fact. That's a fact. <laughs> you can't beat the system. Uh, actually, some did. There are some who didn't die. Anybody got a name that comes to your mind of those who didn't die? Enoch, Genesis 5. Anybody else? Elijah, Elijah. amen. Right? 
Do you know that there's people that maybe it's us that won't die? When Jesus comes for his church, those who are alive at the time of his coming, we will be taken up off of this earth and transformed in a twinkling of an eye and will enter into his presence and will be with the Lord forever. No death, right? Uh, there are those who died more than once. <laughs> Anybody got a few names? Lazarus, he's sort of the poster child, right? <laughs> he was raised from the dead, but Laz died again. Uh, Jesus raised people, uh, Jairus' daughter. Um, there was a widow of a little town called Nain, N-A-I-N. Uh, he raised her son. Uh, Peter raised a young girl by the name of Tabitha. Uh, Paul raised a young boy by the name of Eutychus. Uh, they had all died. Uh, then they lived and they died again. <laughs> the exceptions don't change the rule. In fact, you're probably, most likely, going to die. <laughs> and then comes the judgment. <laughs> okay? So... Give your heart to Jesus Christ because his death was our judgment. He died once under the judgment that you deserve. That was the situation. And then he rose again to prove that what he had just done finished the deal. And so even though death will come, I will live and there will be no judgment. I will not stand before God standing there in my shame and my guilt, and he's going to go, you knew better. <laughs> you sat here in Calvary Chapel on Juneteenth, and you heard the gospel, and you walked away and said, I'll deal with that another time. And then we now, and you sinned again. And the Lord's like, there's no forgiveness except for the shedding of blood. And my son, Jesus Christ, has shed his blood to forgive you, to activate God's will in your life so that you can have an eternal inheritance and you can have a reformation where broken things are set right, like your broken mind is so caught up in this world and the things that this world offers that you, we're deceived by it all and our heart is deceitful. And the Lord wants to set it straight and he will set it straight. And he'll give you a, a pure mind and a pure conscience. And he'll give us a desire motivated by his great love for us and his faithfulness to us. He'll give us a desire to live holy. Holy is cool. Just want you all to know that, okay? It's cool to live a holy life. People go, well, if you're holy, then you're, you don't have any fun. No, I have joy. And I can have joy in all kinds of activities that are fun. <laughs> but I'm not finding my meaning and my value. And it's not like I got to do that again because it was so much fun. It was great. You know, go to the beach multiple times. Paraglide. I don't know. Whatever turns your boat. Float your boat. <laughs> turns your boat. <laughs> Turn the boat, man. <laughs> hey. Restoration. 
inheritance appear. So that's what this, t- this text is telling us, right? The author is, is preaching the gospel to us from the finished work of Christ, and he's doing it in the context of people that were so understanding of an Old Testament, and he's saying, that's all been fulfilled. We now have a superior high priest. We have uh, a temple in heaven. Jesus is in the presence of God, who is the most holy, and he's there for us, having accomplished our salvation. He's there for us. So I just wanted to reframe that in the idea of the love of God. As the Holy Spirit directed our worship this morning, putting that song on Andrew and Olivia's heart, how deep the Father's love. Restoration. Talked about it already a little bit with you. Do you know how it's accomplished? How is restoration of a human soul accomplished? Well, the author tells us it's through redemption. It's through redemption. It's also Juneteenth. I can just toggle back and forth just momentarily. Sorry to change the subject, but... Right? Those people that were remained slaves for a couple of years' time until liberation was granted to them, what had already been provided for them, that's what redemption basically means. It means there's somebody who's held captive... And a ransom needs to be paid to set that person free. And once you're free, you're free indeed. Restoration brought to our right mind and to a relationship with our bridegroom happens through redemption. And it was the giving of himself. He is, Jesus is the ransom. I didn't come to, or I came to seek and to save that which was lost, and to give my life a ransom for many, is what he said. To give my life a ransom for many. I will take those who are held captive, and I will set them free. They're held captive to their sinful nature. And so that is the great love of our bridegroom. Let me just point out to you that Uh, several times it mentions Jesus offering himself, offering himself. Look at verse 14. Jesus offered himself, right? Again in verse 25, he offered himself. And then again in verse 26, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He is the ransom. His pure, innocent Blood stood in our place, right? Bridegroom. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Reformation. Inheritance. Let me camp on that for just a moment as we bring this to a close. Inheritance, as we've already talked about with this idea of a will, right? 
the inheritance was activated, it was received, made possible by the death of the testator and carried out by the executor, Jesus Christ, inheritance. So what I ask myself, well, what is the Father's will? Will, inheritance, synonymous, right? What is his will? To live with him forever. That's his will. God loves you and wants you to live with him forever. Jesus famously said in the upper room, in my father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. He's using marriage language. A father would send his son. The son would arrive at the home of the prospective bride. He would make an arrangement with her father. He would give her a gift, and then he would return back home and build an addition on the house. And when the time was right, he would come back and take his wife unto himself, and they would live together forever. This is marriage language. The father's will is that you live with him forever. Well, what is the inheritance? That's his will. What actually do I receive? What's the benefit? Living together with God is the benefit. Well, what will that look like? It's full of love, joy, and peace. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, Now abideth faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Why is love the greatest? I mean, like, faith is all important. Without faith, you can't please God. Without faith, you cannot be saved. Why is love greater than faith, for heaven's sakes? And hope, man, we need hope, right? Hope is what gets me up in the morning. That as dark and as complex as life is, there is a hope. But love? Paul says love is the greatest. Why is it the greatest? Because it never ends. Where there's prophecies, they will fail, tongues will cease, knowledge will vanish, faith will take sight, hope will be fulfilled. Love never ends. God is love. That's the inheritance. Living with him is living in his love, joy, and peace. Jesus himself said it in his parable of the, of the talents, right? These men were given talents. Occupy until I come. And then when he comes, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. It's not your joy. It's his joy. He's so happy that you're back together, that you now can live together forever. The joy of the Lord is your strength and peace. Interesting that in Revelation 20 and 21, John describes this new Jerusalem that God, the place with the many rooms, that God is going to bring down and put on this new heaven and new earth. In verse 25, he makes a very interesting comment that new Jerusalem, after giving all the dimensions of the thing, which is 1,500 miles high and wide and long, is just an amazing structure, it says its gates will never be shut. Let me ask you, you lock your doors on your car? You leave the keys in it? 
Well, maybe you do. Do you do that if you're in an inner city? Do you lock your door in your house? Do you have a passcode on your phone? <laughs> we got all kinds of security devices. All kinds of security devices. The gates of the New Jerusalem are never shut. It's indicating that there's peace. There's security. That's our inheritance. We possess it now and in the future. The Holy Spirit has come and he's poured God's love into our heart. And the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. Now Paul is so honest. He says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I'll be known even as I am, or know even as I am known. Yeah, that's the inheritance by our bridegroom. And then finally the word appear. He <laughs> says it'll appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. He's coming to take us to himself. Again, this is the message from Revelation 19. The marriage of the Lamb has come. The marriage of the Lamb has come. This is the will of the Father. Father's Day. <laughs> Jesus, in his prayer in John 17, which is the prayer of the great high priest, repeatedly, he opens it. Father, the hour has come. Father, glorify your Son with the glory which I had with you before the world was created. O holy Father, O righteous Father, John 17, 24, Father, may the ones that you have called, I'm paraphrasing, may they be with me and you where we are. You will be their God. They shall be your people. This is the Father's will. This is the Father's heart for all men. What do we do in the meantime? Last thought. Close it up quick. Stare at your inheritance. Stare at it. The sun has died. It's already activated. It's already available. You already possess it. We have the hope and the promise of life with God forever because Jesus is alive. And you know that because His Spirit has testified to you that He's alive. You know, Father, you cry out, Father, our Father who art in heaven. Jesus has made that possible and he secured that truth into our hearts. So what do I do? In the meantime, I stare at my inheritance. Paul said it, 2 Corinthians 4, and I'll close with this. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal, is an eternal inheritance. And the Father's will is that people will know him, know his love, know that he has sent his son to secure for himself this massive bride, <laughs> a big bride. <laughs> Sorry. It's called the church. So let's stand and pray.
Hopefully, Lord, as we connected dots this morning, it's been your image that's been revealed to us. The beauty of you giving your, yourself for us. And you're not detached from us, Lord. Even though you are in heaven, you are not detached. In fact, you're closer to us than we know. I will come to you. I will be in you. So, Lord, we just boil it all down to the simple truth that God loves people. And we thank you for this eternal inheritance, for the reformation of our heart and mind and our soul, setting things right, and the blessed hope that you are coming again. And you'll seal it all up. And so shall we ever be with you. I pray that your truth would encourage us, Lord, as we walk out our life daily by faith, as we face work tomorrow, as we face challenges in this world, as we struggle with things within our own hearts and minds. May we fix our eyes on the eternal. And somehow, Lord, I believe, I know that that will change us here and now. Pray you'd love and strengthen your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Blessings to you.